Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 11. Blood, Sweat and Tears. In which Rupert Murdoch splits the company in two. Boss Kim Williams loses the Civil War. Lachlan Murdoch returns to the fold and the company's dire finances are laid bare. In Kim Williams's office, the mood of his management team is shocked, angry and sad. Many of those in the room already know what he is about to tell them. They picked it up in the corridors of the fifth floor a few moments ago. The boss of News Corp Australia has lost his civil war with the old guard. It will be presented to the outside world as a resignation, but in truth, he's been nudged, if not pushed. It's August 2013, less than two years since Williams took charge, and his agenda to take the company through a digital transformation is nowhere near complete. But advertising revenues have collapsed, and senior editors have turned against Williams, and he's lost the support of the one person who matters. Rupert Murdoch. Williams has had little sleep. He was up late writing a goodbye email to the company's staff, along with making all the other arrangements for his last day in charge. The email will go out shortly, soon after the stock exchange announcement of his unexpected departure. Whilst the leadership roles and the issues encountered have at times been frankly really confronting, it has been a source of perpetual renewal and reinforcement to have worked with so many terrific colleagues, both here and internationally, his email reads. It is the people that one remembers the most. I will be forever grateful to those who have been so helpful and constructively supportive in the many matters we have mutually confronted. There have been many good wins, matched with some memorable, awful problems and opponents. Plenty of those opponents were in the newsrooms below his fifth floor office. The announcement includes a quote from Rupert Murdoch, acknowledging that he was the one who dropped Williams into this nest of vipers. From the early days when we opened Fox Studios Australia to his tenacious work building Foxtel and Fox Sports into the powerhouse it is today, Kim has always operated with great integrity and skill. 
It was with that in mind that I turned to him and asked him to leave the security of the pay TV business and take over the whole of our Australian operations as chief executive of News Corp Australia. I want to thank him for his unwavering commitment and the blood, sweat and tears he has put into News Corp Australia. Tears indeed. Not realising that most of the people in the room already know, Williams gives them the news. He tries not to, but combined with the lost night of sleep, it's too much and he breaks down in tears. Fourteen months earlier. The split. The thing about Rupert Murdoch was that his genius went beyond publishing and broadcasting. A company as big and complex as News Corp required clever financial engineering to keep growing. It took acumen to tap into the liquidity of being listed on stock exchanges while maintaining control, to exploit tax regimes across continents, to juggle debt and to manage myriad joint ventures and cross-ownership deals. There was an army of advisers, yet, until he was well into his 80s, Murdoch always seemed to be on top of the detail when he quizzed staff. One of the things about being stock exchange listed is that market perceptions matter. By 2012, one of the growing perceptions was that News Corp's legacy newspaper publishing businesses in Australia, the UK and the US were dragging down the value of the company's media and entertainment arm. With the dawn of subscription streaming services, there might never be a time when studio businesses would be more valuable. So at the end of June 2012, Murdoch engineered a big plan for News Corp. The company would split itself in two. In one larger part would sit the entertainment businesses, including its 20th Century Fox film studio, Star India, the Fox TV studios, the Fox television network, which include right-leaning news operation Fox News, plus the company's stakes in UK pay TV company B-Sky B and US streaming service Hulu. This part would be called 21st Century Fox. And the other, smaller part of the company would continue as News Corporation and would house the legacy print assets, including the British and American newspapers, along with News Limited Australia, in its entirety. Logically, it didn't make sense for the company's stake in Foxtel to be held within the new News Corp when the company's entertainment assets in the rest of the world now sat with 21st Century Fox. It looked like a pragmatic move. Given the handsome profits Foxtel was generating, it helped ensure that the new News Corp would not consist entirely of shrinking newspaper assets. The company had always indulged in cross-subsidising its products. In the UK, Murdoch had waged a cover price war against the Sun's red-top competitors for years that could only be sustained thanks to the deep pockets of its parent organisation. And even in good times, there had been few moments when the Australian was genuinely profitable. Instead, the newspaper brought gravitas and influence to the group. Book publisher HarperCollins and the company's stake in real estate player REA Group also went into the new News Corp. As a further boost, 
the new company would come into existence debt-free and with a war chest of around $3 billion. Before the share split was complete, Murdoch called a halt to the company's global iPad experiment, The Daily. Although it had been labelled a $30 million five-year journey to profitability, he pulled the plug after just 21 months. Across the media world, tablet magazines had been a bust. Consumers couldn't be persuaded that it was worth the hassle of installing an extra app in exchange for a slightly better experience than on the web. And after a few experiments, advertisers had decided that the effort of building native ads would not deliver a return. The tablet newspaper had only amassed around 100,000 subscribers for its $40 per year fee. $4 million a year in circulation revenue meant there was just no route to profitability. Murdoch no longer believed that tablets might save newspapers. The market liked the share split. Breakups of big-listed companies often release value that wasn't showing up in the share price. In Australia, Fairfax Media had long argued that the sum of its parts was worth more than the ASX was giving it credit for. It took a year from the first announcement for the News Corp split to happen, and in that time, the company's share price grew by 60%. Ownership control of the two new companies would be the same. The Murdoch family would still own 39% of the voting shares in each of the two companies. Rupert Murdoch would remain chairman of both. In addition, he would be 21st Century Fox's chief executive, while Robert Thompson, an Australian who had joined the Empire in Melbourne in 1979, before going on to edit The Times in London and The Wall Street Journal in New York, would be global CEO of the new News Corp. To tidy up the branding, News Limited in Australia would become News Corp Australia. The new logo would be based on an amalgam of the handwriting of Rupert Murdoch and his father Keith Murdoch, who had left him Adelaide's News, which was to be the foundation of the News Limited empire when he died in 1952. Announcing the rebrand to staff in June 2013, CEO Kim Williams emphasised that this was now a multimedia business, not just a newspaper publisher. News Corp Australia will continue to offer the best journalism, analysis and insight across all platforms and devices. We will continue to put our customers, readers and advertisers alike at the heart of all that we do. What if? Of all the what ifs, of the past decade of Australian media. Perhaps the most fascinating one is the question of what if Kim Williams had seen off his opponents? To the outside world, 2012 had gone as well as it might have for News Corp. Despite the fact that the June job cuts had been almost as deep at news, the outside impression was that bitter rival Fairfax Media had it worse. While ASX disclosure obligations had forced Fairfax to put a number to its 1900 axed jobs, News Corp never had to reveal its 1600 redundancies. Instead, staff had slipped away in dribs and drabs. The downside of that was the morale-sapping staff expectation that at any moment they might be next to get the tap on the shoulder. Kim Williams was fiercely intelligent, 
perhaps the most intellectual executive to hold the role of CEO at a major Australian media company. He was a serious person with a background in the arts. He had already proved his business credentials, turning Foxtel into a highly profitable company, but he had never worked in papers. And newspapers were different, particularly at News Corp. Culturally, editorial instinct trumped data. His predecessor, John Hardigan, was a journalist by trade, and within News Corp culture, that counted for a lot, maybe everything. So the evidence-driven Williams was always going to face a battle. His style, which had a touch of the imperious about it, was to push through rather than deign to play the internal politics that exist in every company. He would later tell the ABC, I'm a person who tends to call a spade a spade, and a lot of people didn't like that. Ultimately, the question became, would Rupert Murdoch back the changemaker when the going got tough? In hindsight, that was unlikely. While Williams had been able to set his own agenda at Foxtel, which had included standing up to intimidating shareholders like Kerry Packer, the newspapers were Murdoch's first love, and many of the editors who had built the business for him were still there, and still had the old man's ear. Depending how you look at it, Williams went either too fast or not hard enough. Recognising that the company's business model was in desperate trouble, Williams had written his strategy memo to Murdoch in January 2012 and then set about delivering the plan. His aim to slash the number of divisions from 19 to 5 meant that many within the company faced losing territory. Most significantly, the feudal power structure, which saw centres of control in each state, and even within each newspaper, would be rocked by Williams' attempts to put in a more centralised, efficient system. Editorial egos were bruised by the message with which he'd greeted the company's leadership when he arrived, declaring that the order of the tummy compass was over. His problem was that many of his opponents had known Murdoch for decades, and he would still take their calls. There was no respect for chain of command at News Corp. Chris Mitchell, editor-in-chief of The Australian, Paul Whittaker, editor of The Daily Telegraph, and Peter Blunden, managing director of the company's Herald and Weekly Times group in Melbourne, would mount an insurgency against Williams. In his memoir, Making Headlines, Mitchell boasts of repeatedly going over Williams's head, director Murdoch. Mitchell would argue that Williams was giving him insufficient credit for the progress made to get the Australian ready to survive digital disruption. The paper had been first in the company to launch an app and then a paywall, and that the new CEO did not yet understand newspaper publishing. Mitchell claimed that he decided to go to Murdoch because he believed Williams was considering taking the loss-making Australian digital only and closing the printed edition. He wrote, I decided to play the trump card newspaper editors sometimes need to play. Resignation. This would bring my differences with Williams to a head. But how to strike with maximum effect and achieve the change I knew the paper needed. Mitchell made his move just a couple of months after Williams had made the big announcement on the restructuring. Mitchell wrote a lengthy treatise to Murdoch 
setting out where he believed Williams was going wrong in the management of the company and his newspaper. He deliberately sent the note when Williams was tied up in a session for senior executives on digital disruption. I had arranged it that way so it would hit Kim's Blackberry 10 minutes before the end of the Digital Academy session of 10th of August 2012 and Kim and Rupert would receive the same communication at the same time. According to Mitchell, Murdoch refused the resignation, ordered Williams to give him a decent pay rise and to take him to lunch to hear his point of view. Less than two months after 1600 of his colleagues lost their jobs because of the financial challenges the company was facing, Mitchell was delighted to accept what he says was a six-figure pay rise. And within the Murdoch family, Williams had lost an important supporter in Lachlan Murdoch, who remained bruised over News Corp's Fox Sports, teaming up with Nine for the NRL bidding in August 2012. Even when he was doing his own thing at Ten and Nova, Murdoch had remained a director of News Corp, and it would be unwise to cross him. In the months that followed, Williams, advised by consultants BCG, continued to pursue more centralisation across the company. During a visit to Sydney by Rupert Murdoch in April 2013, Mitchell lobbied him again, complaining about the presence of the consultants. BCG did not understand our business. Mitchell conceded that Williams needed to move things on from the tenure of Chief Operating Officer Peter McCourt and Williams's predecessor John Hardigan. I understood the forces of digital change confronting Williams, and I knew how desperate he was to drive the company successfully through that change, he wrote. It was just that, whereas Harto and McCourt had been stuck in the headlights of the digital road train smashing through the Australian media, Williams was almost too eager to lead that change. Other long-time servants of the company walked away. New South Wales Regional Director Michael Miller, who had been with the organisation for more than 20 years, left to run APN News and Media, filling the vacancy created by the shareholder ructions, which triggered the departure of CEO Brent Chenoweth and members of the board. After News Corp and Fairfax, APN was the third big newspaper player in the country. The temperature rose further in June 2013, after Kevin Rudd finally made his move against Julia Gillard, retaking the Prime Ministership ahead of a September election. Most of the News Corp papers came out hard against Rudd and strongly backed coalition leader Tony Abbott to win the 7th of September poll. Murdoch sent his infamous tabloid editor, Col Allen, back to Australia to oversee the election coverage. Perhaps it was also to have a trusted observer take the temperature inside Holt Street. Allen was a former editor of the Daily Telegraph, now running the New York Post, who delighted in the nickname Col Pot. Within a few days, the telly splashed with the front page headline, Kick this mob out! under a picture of Rudd. In Melbourne, the Herald Sun went with Tony's time. Once again, Murdoch picked the political winner. Abbott won easily. Williams was gone before election day. The shock announcement came on the 8th of August. 
he will be replaced by the decidedly non-digital Julian Clark, a former MD of the Herald and Weekly Times group, who'd retired six years earlier and was about to turn 70. On the day he told his team of his departure, Williams urged them to stick around, telling them that things were going to be okay. A fortnight later, Clark brought Foxtel's well-regarded chief operating officer, Peter Tonner, known to colleagues as PT, across to be the company's COO. Williams's team concluded he'd been referring to this appointment when he said that things would be all right. In the weeks that followed, another big loss for the organisation was Chief Marketing Officer Corin Demopoulos. His appointment in 2012 had been a coup for the company. Demopoulos had been one of the most influential marketers in the UK as Director of Marketing for Sky Television, which included B Sky B Channels, Sky News and Sky Sports. He had masterminded the company's sponsorship of the new Team Sky cycling team, which saw cyclist Bradley Wiggins become the first British winner of the Tour de France. Under Williams, Demopolis had led the integration of News Corp's 17 marketing divisions into one. He was among the most vocal on the day of Williams's exit and left the organisation the following month after just a year and a half with News Corp. Over the following months, there would be a changing of the guard with sales boss Fiorella DeSanto, corporate relations boss Adam Suckling and commercial chief Jerry Harris all departing. Mitchell claims that on the day of Williams's departure, Murdoch compared News Corp's plight to that of Fairfax. Tell me why that man Kim was in such a hurry to get to the bottom of the toilet before Greg Highwood gets there. I told him he had three or four years to sort things out. If it needed justifying, Williams' sense of urgency was underlined the following February when the Audited Media Association of Australia released new numbers for digital subscribers to Australia's newspaper mastheads up to the end of 2013. A year earlier, the first digital numbers released for the Australians' paywall had been 35,987 subscribers in the quarter ending December 2012. Twelve months on, while the digital number for the Oz had reached 53,019 subscribers, growth had slowed. Since the management upheaval, they'd grown just 1.6% in the final quarter of the year. And the Oz was where News Corp put its best foot forward for digital subscriptions. The theory was that it would be easier to get subscribers to upmarket papers like The Australian and, at Fairfax, The Australian Financial Review because employers were probably picking up the tab. But there was more doubt that tabloid buyers would convert. The audit numbers seemed to bear that out. The paywall for the Herald Sun, the first of the News Corp tabloids to make the jump, was faring even worse than the Australian, with digital-only sales stuck on 33,106 at the end of 2013. In the last quarter, that number had actually gone backwards, by 0.3%. It was hard to look elsewhere in the empire for hope that readers would subscribe to tabloid mastheads. Although there were 117,000 subscribers to the Sun Plus offering in the UK, 
the company had laid out the equivalent of about $50 million in order to offer Premier League soccer highlights as part of the digital package. A year later, once former News of the World editor Rebecca Brooks was acquitted of criminal charges relating to the phone hacking scandal and returned as CEO of News UK, the company would do a U-turn on a paywall for the Sun. Fearing the paper was losing online relevance without a large audience, the Sun went free again. Meanwhile, Fairfax was doing little better in the audit numbers, although the paywall for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age had only been switched on halfway through 2013. The Sydney Morning Herald finished 2013 on 83,558 digital-only subscribers, while The Age was close behind on 77,220. While these numbers were all green shoots, suggesting some people were indeed willing to pay for online news, it was going to be a long time before it would make a significant contribution. Blue Book, Red Ink And then a massive leak, the biggest in News Corp's history, revealed exactly what Williams had been contending with. News website Crikey obtained a copy of The Blue Book, the highly confidential, detailed weekly operating accounts for News Corp Australia, distributed to just a handful of senior executives. Crikey uploaded a PDF of the whole document. Printed out, the accounts were as thick as a telephone directory and showed the performance of every part of the News Corp business, publication by publication. The document was a treasure trove of information about a company usually opaque with its numbers. It was the blue book for the week ending 30th of June, which meant that the year-to-date numbers gave a full snapshot of the 2013 financial year. Shockingly, publishing revenue to the company had sunk by 14.4%. The accounts showed that the rate of decline was far faster than the company had been expecting, It had budgeted for revenues to fall from $2.3 billion to $2.2 billion. The fall had actually been three times worse than that, a drop of just over a third of a billion dollars, taking revenues below $2 billion for the first time in many years. The impact on operating profits for the publishing business was almost as bad, down from $285 million profit in the 2012 financial year to just $88 million in FY13. Unless something radical happened, Australia's biggest media company would soon be making a loss. Flagship newspaper The Australian had seen its revenues fall by 20% to $108 million, and its losses had worsened from $19 million in 2012 to $27 million in 2013. Although the revenue fall for the Daily Telegraph was nearly as bad, down 14.4%, the Sydney title was at least still profitable, making $8 million for the year, compared with $23 million the year before. But it had only brought in $95,000 in digital subscriptions, half of what was budgeted. At the Herald Sun, revenues were down 13.5%, and profits fell from 58.2 million 
to $34.6 million. The first year of digital subscriptions had brought in $3.9 million. It was a drop in the bucket compared with the $57.6 million editorial cost of producing the Melbourne publication. In total, just $14 million of the company's $1.9 billion newspaper revenues had come through digital subscriptions. In Queensland, things were even worse. Revenue for the Courier-Mail was down 18.1% and profits fell from $53 million to $17 million. In Adelaide, the advertiser saw profits halve from $42 million to $22 million. The situation was dire in Perth too, where the Sunday Times slumped from a $4.3 million profit to a $628,000 loss. Free commuter paper MX saw profits drop from $7.4 million to $3.1 million. While it remained profitable in Sydney and Melbourne, the Brisbane edition of MX slumped from a $1 million profit the year before to a loss of $150,000. Thanks to increased cover prices, circulation revenue across News Corp had held up relatively well, down 4.6% from $466 million to $444 million. The nosedive was mainly an advertising issue. The worst of the pain was caused by advertisers large and small walking away. In part, it was structural change. Media agencies had begun to conclude that print was an expensive way of reaching customers when it could be done for a fraction of the price via newer, more targeted media like Facebook. And the last of the classified advertisers were moving online. But Williams's restructuring had also disrupted the local sales ecosystems. What would never be answered with his departure was whether that would have been merely a transitional blip or a strategic mistake. Across the company, every newspaper saw its display advertising revenues falling. Display advertising dropped by $173 million to $845 million, a fall of 17%. Classified advertising across the newspaper group was down 20.8% to $338 million. The company had grown its digital advertising by just 8.3% to $38 million. Worst hit was the Australian, with advertising revenue down 34%. There was bad news on every page of the Blue Book. The company's free suburban titles were also fading fast, particularly in New South Wales. The most profitable title, the Wentworth Courier, saw its profits fall from $6.4 million to $5.6 million. A string of the titles in northwest and southwest Sydney slumped to loss making. The Canterbury Bankstown Express fared worst, making a loss of $734,000. Within the company's community newspapers division, revenue was down 7% and profits were down 26.3%. The company's magazine arm, Newslife Media, was also in trouble. 
profits for the magazines had already been a wafer-thin $900,000 the previous year, and now that had fallen to $300,000. The figures also laid bare that unaudited circulations of the company's magazines were far smaller than advertisers were led to believe. Glossy men's title GQ was selling an average of just 15,812 copies per edition. Among the oddities in the Blue Book was the information that Australian independent business media, the umbrella division for Business Spectator and Eureka Report, which had been bought for $30 million just a year before for its growth prospects, had made a loss of $1.8 million. This was down to Business Spectator losing $2.5 million. Eureka Report had made a small profit of $671,000. And in the digital arena, the company was struggling too. Parenting site KidSpot saw profit fall from $3.6 million to $2.2 million. And free news site news.com.au lost $790,000 for the year, which was actually an improvement on its loss of $2.3 million the previous year. The accounts also revealed the tightly held secret of how many staff had been cut. The staff had been decimated. A total of 987 had gone from newspapers and 611 from the rest of the group. There were 1,598 fewer staff than the 17,506 permanent employees in 2012. The company had spent $20 million on paying out redundancies and another $6.9 million on what was labelled as transformation. There was just one bright-ish spot. Foxtel, now half-owned by News Corp since buying CMH's quarter, was still a profit machine. Admittedly, subscriber growth looked close to peaking, up only fractionally from 2.28 million to 2.32 million customers. The average revenue per residential customer had taken a tumble, down from $105.45 per month to $95.86. Nonetheless, Foxtel had come in slightly ahead of budget, delivering a half a billion dollar profit. Supporters of Kim Williams would have said the Blue Book proved he had to act fast and the retreat back to local seats of power meant that his strategy was never fully executed. His opponents argued that his move to centralise sales operations had weakened local connections to advertisers and made the situation worse. Within a few hours, Crikey was forced to take down the story and delete the Blue Book from its website. But by then, the information had been republished elsewhere. The publication's editor, Marnie Cordell, would later write, Not long after it landed in inboxes, News Corp's lawyers were on the phone. We agreed to shred the original docs, but the stories and the humiliating figures in them remain online. One of the first items of business for new boss Julian Clark was to reverse many of Williams's initiatives for the single management structure. He re-established general managers for individual business units and put advertising sales directors into each one. In an email to staff, he said, 
these business units will focus on their local markets and have clear accountabilities to ensure they serve their customers and grow their revenues. And it was back to a United Nations of marketing too. He wrote, while we will maintain a strong national marketing function, we will also rebalance marketing investment to the individual business units to ensure marketing focus on local markets in order to drive local revenues. Miller's Crossing In March 2014, Lachlan Murdoch decided it was warmer inside News Corp than being out in the cold. The delicate family politics saw him named as non-executive co-chairman of both News Corp and 21st Century Fox, sitting alongside his father, who would be executive co-chairman. Meanwhile, Lachlan's brother James, still trying to put the stench of the phone hacking saga behind him, would be co-chief operating officer at 21st Century Fox, alongside Chase Carey, as well as board director of News Corp. Lachlan would be splitting his time between Australia and New York. In May, he told a gathering of News Corp advertisers in Melbourne. Coming back to news felt right emotionally for many reasons. But the reason side of why I'm so excited to be working more closely with my father, with Robert Thompson, with Julian Clark, and with the rest of the team in London, New York, and here in Australia, is because I can see a myriad of opportunities ahead. A week later, he spoke at my Mumbrella 360 conference in Sydney. Backstage, he was courteous. It was his last stop before heading to the airport to take the company jet to the US for a board meeting. We'd organised for him to slip out via the Hilton Hotel's maintenance corridors as soon as the session ended. He looked less fit than he had at the Nova party four years earlier. He'd put on a little weight and needed a haircut. His lack of suntan suggested he'd been spending more time in boardrooms than he had outdoors. He looked a little more careworn. Waiting for the 700 or so delegates to get settled, we sat backstage with John Steadman, boss of media buying agency group Group M, who would be interviewing him on stage. Murdoch said he wanted to get on the front foot. Ask me anything. I want to fire up, he told Steadman. On stage... Murdoch took the fight to Fairfax, accusing the company of talking down newspapers through the signals it had sent about planning to stop printing weekday editions. We're in the greatest industry in the world, going through the greatest change we've ever experienced. We were supporting the industry and talking it up, which it deserves. Some of our competitors were talking it down in their own products. That's just crazy and a lack of leadership that frankly is irresponsible, and it's got to stop. There was plenty to talk about at that board meeting Lachlan was heading for. On the 21st century Fox side of the business, Rupert Murdoch had decided that the future of the TV industry would be the survival of the biggest. As usual, he had spotted early the strategic significance of the next media trend. The rise of subscription streaming being pioneered by Netflix was a sign that the value in the TV business chain would be in those who made the content, as well as having the means of distributing it. Vertical integration, as it was known. 
In June 2014, Murdoch took a shot at what would have been the biggest deal in the company's history, lobbing an $80 billion bid for media and entertainment giant Time Warner. It was time to eat or be eaten. The proposal would have put news channel CNN into the same family as Fox News and movie studios HBO and Warner Brothers into the same camp as 20th Century Fox. Warner was home of the Harry Potter and Lego movie franchises, while 20th Century Fox was behind X-Men and Avatar. Time Warner resisted. Unusual for Murdoch, he did not continue to pursue his quarry. In August, he dropped the chase. Two years later, Time Warner sold to Telco AT&T for $108.7 billion and became Warner Media. Closer to home, there were other media trends to address. It had been the best part of a generation since News Corp had closed a major newspaper, but that was about to change. The last big round of closures came in the death in the afternoon period from 1988 to 1992, when evolving readership habits killed off afternoon newspapers. In Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth, the afternoon papers had closed or merged, the victims of readers changing behaviour. MX had been a reinvention of afternoon papers for the 21st century. Launched in February 2001, MX was a copycat of a Swedish formula that had swept much of Europe. Designed to bring in a generation of younger readers, the formula was simple – Lighter news and sport, a Sudoku, and very little opinion. It was free for commuters. Initially, News Corp's MX had gone up against Fairfax's own free sheet, Melbourne Express, with both titles launching just a day apart. Fairfax, having made the mistake of doing mornings rather than afternoons, had caved in after five months and closed, while MX had become highly profitable. A key part of the advertising sales story was that by focusing on putting the paper in the hands of people using public transport during the afternoon commute, the readers were wage earners, the sort of people with money in their pockets that marketers wanted to reach. For the first few years, before smartphones, it was a common sight to see most of the people in a railway carriage or bus with their heads buried in an MX. It was a route to creating a new generation of Gen Y newspaper readers. After Melbourne came a Sydney edition in 2005 and a Brisbane one in 2007. But once smartphones began to take hold, MX's days were numbered. And with advertising as the only revenue stream, there was nowhere to go. The paper redesigned and made some redundancies in March 2015. And in May, Julian Clark pulled the plug altogether, blaming the swift shift to mobile in an email to staff. The last edition was the 12th of June. Editor Craig Herbert told readers in a goodbye editorial, it's been a fun and frenetic journey for all who have had the privilege to work on MX over the years, and every single member of the MX family is gutted by the decision to pull down the curtain. It was to be Clark's final move. After a couple of years of caretaking, 
Clark announced his re-retirement on the 19th of June. In his place would be a double management team. COO Peter Tonner would step up as CEO and Michael Miller would return after a two-year turnaround project at APN News and Media as executive chairman with an additional remit for Asian expansion. Neither one would report in to the other. To many, it looked like the company now had two bosses. The Australian Financial Review's acerbic columnist, Joe Aston described it as shameless org chart acrobatics to retain two senior executives. It's hard to tell if Tonner will run the company while Miller floats around buying DVD vending machines in Cambodian shopping centres. Or if Miller is boss and Tonner is just a jumped-up chief operating officer, wrote Aston. Others saw Tonner as having been looked after by Clark on his way out of the door as thanks for being a good soldier, while Miller was the future. For some months, it wasn't entirely clear who was really in charge. Staff recalled Tonner calling meetings and Miller unexpectedly showing up and taking over. It was a very News Corp situation where Rupert Murdoch seemed to like the creative tension of two executives fighting for the same turf. The situation resolved itself the following March. Tonner headed sideways to replace departing Foxtel CEO Richard Frudenstein. The boat was now Miller's to sail. One of Miller's first big moves involved his previous berth at APN News and Media. In February 2016, APN told the market that while its outdoor and radio businesses were faring well, its regional papers were going backwards and had seen revenues drop by 7% to $188.5 million, and profits for the unit had dropped by 27% to $18.4 million. Miller's successor at APM was Kieran Davis, who'd previously been running the company's radio arm, Australian Radio Network. Davis told the market that APN was putting its Australian regional media arm up for sale. Based in Queensland, ARM owned 12 daily newspapers, including Gladstone's Observer and the Gympie Times, more than 60 community and non-weekly publications, plus 30 regional news websites, some of which had just started to put up paywalls. Many of the APN newspapers had briefly been part of the News Corp empire before. In 1988, Competition regulations had forced Murdoch to sell his company's interest in the Provincial Newspapers Queensland Group, which had come along with News Limited's $2.5 billion takeover of the Herald and Weekly Times. The buyer had been Irish business tycoon Tony O'Reilly, who dramatically improved the financial performance of the papers, tripling profits within five years, and floating the group on the ASX as Australian Provincial Newspapers, or APN, in 1992. Under Davis, APN's future was going to be where it saw growth, radio and outdoor, not the newspapers. New ownership should give ARM the flexibility to invest where required to continue to provide quality news and content to its audience without having to compete for APN's capital, Davis said in the statement. He added that he was talking to a number of parties. Among those parties was his old boss, Michael Miller. 
News Corp, which already held a 14.9% stake in APN, was the logical owner. It already owned a string of Queensland newspapers, including its Metro Daily, the Courier Mail in Brisbane. Buying the APM papers would give the company a near monopoly in print in Queensland. The only other potential acquirer, Fairfax, would never have persuaded its ASX investors of the benefit of getting even more deeply into newspapers. The main question was one of price. Not long before, the argument was that traditional media businesses were worth one times revenue or five times profit. In the case of APN's newspapers, that would have meant a valuation somewhere between $92 million and $188.5 million. But in the US, the extinction timeline was rumbling and newspapers were changing hands for $1 or being closed altogether. There was never going to be a competitive auction as there were not many other potential buyers. And APM was a motivated seller before the value of the papers fell any more. The price in the end was $36.6 million. It was a bargain for News Corp. Even if many of the newspapers were in commercial decline, the company would easily squeeze enough profits over the next couple of years to quickly cover the price of its purchase. The deal was announced in June 2016 and given the green light by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission in December. News Corp's War on Everything As an organisation, News Corp was rarely thwarted, and when it was, the reaction was an intimidating spectacle. Once again, the flashpoint was NRL. By August 2015, David Gingell was playing a near-unbeatable game at the helm of nine. Seemingly out of nowhere, Nine announced that he had signed a new deal with the NRL. Despite Fox Sports being the pay TV incumbent with the right to show five games per week, News Corp didn't receive a courtesy heads up about the announcement. Last time, News Corp had bid alongside Nine, much to Lachlan Murdoch's annoyance, at 10. This time round, with News Corp now increasingly in bed with 10, That sort of alliance made no sense for Nine, so Gingell struck out alone. The deal would cover the seasons 2018 to 2022. Nine would get four games per week on Thursday, Friday and Saturday evenings, plus Sunday afternoons. It also included the finals and the three annual State of Origin games. And although in part it would extend the status quo, as Nine already held the free-to-air rights there were a couple of game-changing elements. First, Nine had also bought the streaming rights to these games. And second, it had increased its number of weekly games from three to four. The announcement from Gingell crowed, Rugby League is part of Nine's DNA. This is a transformational outcome for supporters. Rugby League and Nine, enabling viewers to see the best of the NRL live and free four days per week, anywhere, on any device. The deal was worth $185 million per year. News Corp was furious, not least because Foxtel had lost its exclusive Saturday game, a key selling point for subscribers. But it was also a loss of face, 
It looked like a deliberate snub by NRL Chief Executive Dave Smith of the organisation that had once been an owner of the code. The news dropped while Rupert Murdoch was in the country, making it all the more embarrassing for his executives. In the days that followed, the full firepower of News Corp's mastheads was focused on Smith and Chairman John Grant, claiming the move would cost the game a fortune because the remaining pay TV rights would have a much lower value. Columnists in the Daily Telegraph called for Smith to be given the chop, while the Australian took a similarly negative tone. Columnist Rebecca Wilson complained that Smith had a smug smile on his face when he attended a News Corp lunch after the announcement. He strutted into a Fox Sports darts event, suggested the telly's James Hooper. Smith had put a wrecking ball through the game, Wilson suggested in another column. Dave Smith's days at the top are surely numbered, wrote columnist Buzz Rothfield. Maybe Smith had done the deal with Nine to get a multi-million dollar bonus, suggested Hooper. Smith's position was untenable and he had lost the support of players, suggested the telly's Paul Crawley. At the Australian, company cheerleader Darren Davidson reported, Smith and Grant have alienated two of the game's long-standing supporters in News Corp and Telstra. Describing it as a very public humiliation for News Corp, the Australian Financial Review observed, Some senior media executives are surprised by the sheer volume of invective news is spewing, given that the competition watchdog is currently scrutinising its influence over sports rights and Australian media in general, as it decides whether to oppose Foxtel's 15% investment in 10 network holdings. Within days, Murdoch got the first part of his revenge. He gave a big pile of money to AFL instead, with the richest rights deal in Australian sporting history. Fox Sports, Seven and Telstra shook hands on a rapidly negotiated six-year deal with the AFL, covering 2017 to the end of 2022. News Corp would pay $1.3 billion, which would give Fox Sports the right to show all nine weekly games. Foxtel co-owner Telstra would pay $300 million to get the digital rights for its planned new Telstra TV streaming service. And Seven would contribute $940 million in cash, plus $60 million in advertising inventory, to show an average of three and a half games per week. News Corp would also be allowed to on-sell one of the Saturday afternoon games to a free-to-air network. Murdoch appeared at a press conference alongside seven proprietor Kerry Stokes to announce the AFL deal. Unconvincingly, Murdoch told the journalists, We've always preferred Aussie rules. We've always believed this is the premium code in Australia. It is the national game. When asked about the pending rugby league pay TV rights, Murdoch replied, I guess we will engage with the NRL in time. News Corp's global chief executive, Robert Thompson, was also in Australia. He stuck the knife in too, promising to promote AFL on NRL's home turf. We will ensure that more people see more games of football and its reach is extended, particularly in New South Wales and Queensland, where there is obvious a growth opportunity 
and there is a growth opportunity because this is just a wonderful game. It was the us-against-the-world situation in which News Corp had always thrived. In the weeks that followed, the News Corp papers ramped up their AFL coverage in the East and continued their editorial criticisms of Smith. As Telegraph columnist Rebecca Wilson put it, Rupert Murdoch fought tooth and nail to own rugby league and to control the television rights into perpetuity. He showed he would pay through the nose for them too. Now he has switched his allegiances and made it clear league is a poor relation. In the end, News Corp got their man. Smith resigned from the NRL. His departure reopened channels between the NRL and News Corp to do a deal on the pay TV rights. Now, every NRL game would be on Fox Sports, including a new Friday night game, which would be exclusive to the pay TV broadcaster. And Nine agreed to sell its Saturday game to News Corp. The total deal was $1.85 billion to NRL. The deal drove down the cost to nine, from $185 million per year to $125 million. All was forgiven. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade.media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.